Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone. What's going on out there? How are you? I hope you're all right wherever you happen to be. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. I'm pleased to be with you. Today on the program, my guest is Delia Kai, author of the debut novel, Central Places. This novel is emotionally true. Every thought Audrey's had, I've had, but I haven't like actually lived through these events. I haven't brought someone home. And someone was like, what do you think is gonna happen when you get to that point? And I was like, I really don't know. <laughs> and so, just for myself, it was kind of really a really introspective way to answer some questions. But it's kind of funny to think about like in in a, in a way like having forecasted this scenario and then not knowing like what will it be like when I do it, <laughs> if I do it, yeah. All right, that was Delia Kai. Her debut novel Central Places is now available from Ballantine Books. Central Places is a story about going home. It's about a young woman named Audrey Zhou, a first-generation Chinese-American woman who was raised in a small town in the Midwest, but who now lives and works in New York City slash Brooklyn. In Central Places, Audrey goes home for the holidays with her new white fiancé, Ben, a well-born Manhattanite. It's her first time back to Hickory Grove, the town she grew up in, in many years, and it's a meet-the-parents story. Audrey's parents immigrated from China years ago in search of a better life, and now here she is with her new fiancé back home again. And this return home is destabilizing on many levels. For one thing, Audrey has a difficult relationship with her mother, who is very demanding and opinionated. And Audrey also has unresolved relationship issues with some old friends from back in the day with whom she comes into contact during her stay. So 
Central Places is a hugely entertaining novel that is also very clever. It is a story that is about race and class, the immigration experience, family issues, relationships, ambition, uh, among other things. And all of this stuff is layered on top of and woven through a framework that should be familiar to anyone who is familiar with romantic comedies. Yeah, again, it's a meet the parents story. It happens over the holidays, but this is not a romantic comedy in any kind of traditional sense. This is a sharply observed and deeply felt social novel, novel of manners. It's about the place. It's about the past. It's about finding one's place in the world. It's about relationships of all kinds. And it is just delightful. I had a great conversation with Delia Kai. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company, publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson. I've been talking about this novel all month long. I read it. I interviewed Wendell Stevenson on this show. Margot is an excellent coming-of-age novel set in New York City and out on Long Island in the mid-20th century. It's about a young woman coming of age at a time of great social and cultural and political change. She is... The only child in a dynastic family and she doesn't fit in. She's a science nerd. There's a woman smoking a cigarette on the cover of this novel, like a young woman in like a peacoat. You know what I'm talking about? You need to read this. It's called Margot. It's by Wendell Stevenson, available now from W.W. W. Norton and Company. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive is available to you, the listener, free of charge. That means over 800 episodes and counting. They're all out there. They're all waiting for you. It's all free. There is no paywall. That is by design. I can't stand paywalls. I want this stuff to be accessible. I want this to be an easy and user-friendly experience for all. And I want the authors who guest on this show to be able to share their episodes without any roadblocks. So that's the way that it is. But what I am counting on is I am counting on regular listeners and people who really enjoy this show, people who find value in it, get something from it, or just people who love literary culture and want to help perpetuate it. I'm counting on those kinds of people to support this show and to help keep it going. The show cannot survive without the support of listeners. So I've tried to make supporting this show a no-brainer, as easy as possible. You can support the Other People podcast for as little as $1 per month. That's it. A dollar in the hat every month, you won't even feel it. You really won't. A dollar? Maybe you will, but probably you won't. It's a sliding scale. So as you move up the scale, one dollar a month, three, five, ten, twenty, whatever you can swing. As you move up, you get merchandise. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth. At Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. Help keep the Other People Podcast going. Patreon.com slash Other PPL Pod. If you would like to get other people gear, merchandise, t-shirts, sweatshirts, onesies for your newborn child, just go to the show's website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You'll see it. If you would like to sign up for my official newsletter, I do a once a week email newsletter. It is straightforward. It is only once a week. I will not bury you in emails. You can sign up at the show's website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. 
it's pretty easy. It's a, essentially just an enumerated list of links, things that I've been reading and finding interesting or useful or funny or all of the above. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com and sign up. It's free. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, rate the show. If it's possible to write a review, write a little review. It helps the show find new listeners. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. The entire archive is available on YouTube, and you can now watch The Other People Show on the YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person, if you want to watch my conversation with Delia Kai, just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, or Other PPL with Brad Listy, and when you find the channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People Podcast has what I modestly would refer to as a robust social media presence. It is on TikTok. It is on Instagram. It is on Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at other PPL. And I will post video clips of these conversations on all of those channels. So you can watch clips on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter, or all three. It's your choice. If you would like to email me, the email address for this podcast is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Say hello. And last but not least, I have a novel out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Have you heard of this? It's a book. It's a novel. I wrote it. It came out last year. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you don't want to read it, but you would prefer to have me read it to you, that's an option. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a work of autofiction. You can uh, find out what's happening in the recesses of my being. So my guest, once again, is Delia Kai. Her new novel, Central Places, is available now from Ballantine Books. Delia Kai is based in New York, where she is the Vanities correspondent for Vanity Fair magazine. She also, from time to time, writes a newsletter called D's Links. And I'm just so pleased to have her here on the show and to have had the chance to meet her and catch her as she makes her fine debut. So here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Delia Kai. And her new novel, One More Time, is called Central Places. It feels like, like there were so many almost like little arrows pointing to this book that like there was like a tweet that was definitely one of them where it was just someone making a joke about how like it was leading up to the holidays and this guy was like oh I just realized that like you know my girlfriend and I live in New York and we have you know these like big city jobs and she goes home for the holidays every year to her like small town and I'm really he was like I'm realizing I'm the city boyfriend that she like could very well leave behind if she like was in a Hallmark holiday rom-com and <laughs> she goes home and meets like some guy from her high school who now like owns a Christmas tree farm and like it was just like I just love the specificity of the setup because I it just sort of reminded me I was like oh yeah I guess like that is you know a really hilarious like holiday like Hallmark movie trope and it kind of made me realize like, oh, that's actually funny because I've never really thought about kind of my life living in New York, going to back to my small town for the holidays 
in those terms. Like, you know, to me, it's just like, oh, I have to have to go home. I never thought it was like kind of this like funny romantic thing, you know. Well, let's and let's let's zero in on what small town it is. You're from the Midwest, as is Audrey, the main character in your book. Yeah, yeah. I grew up outside of so I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. I was like a like a PhD baby. And then I grew up outside of Peoria. Like I spent a few years living in Peoria as a kid. And then I think by the time I was seven, we moved to Dunlap, Illinois, which is sort of this former like railroad farming village. And it's essentially become like a suburb of Peoria. But it's kind of this really funny, like still like partially like very rural, like you drive by farms on your way to school. You can tell whenever it's the day that like all the farmers put manure out um, in their fields because the whole village literally smells. (laughs) But like, you know, we go shopping at Walmart and Target and like Olive Garden is the fancy place to eat in town. So it's also like very suburban in that way. That sounds familiar. You know, I had a, the neighborhood that I grew up in, I mean, I don't think I was quite as rural as you, but I grew up in suburban Indianapolis and my neighborhood abutted a pig farm. Yeah. And it it smelled horrible. Right. Yeah. (laughs) At certain, (laughs) certain like wind conditions, you know? Yes. Yeah. And so I think like when you talk about Hallmark movies and that those tropes, like Hallmark movie tropes, my mother for, uh, I should say is a huge Hallmark movie fan. Like she watches them like before bed because they like ease her mind or something. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I'm familiar with this. My daughter and my mom, like that's how they bond. They watch Hallmark movies together whenever we're at my parents' place. But I kept thinking about that. I feel like your book hits a lot of those notes. And I, I felt like you were aware of that as you were writing it, like you're playing into certain rom-com tropes. But then I also felt like what I classified just for lack of a better way of doing it as like Alexander Payne energy like those movies that he makes like election because he like mm-hmm. the midwest is sort of his milieu too and like like yeah ordinary people's lives not like the lives of like the the coastal elites or whatever it is you know yeah. and so i felt like there was maybe some sort of hybrid happening between like the hallmark movie rom-com energy and like the alexander Payne black comedy darkness <laughs> yeah oh i love that was that in any way like on your mind? Like, were you thinking of it in hybrid terms like that or? I think so. I mean, I think that like, I've just, I don't know if like those, if like, you know, election or anything was like a direct reference, but I think that like, I've always really loved consuming stories that are really grounded in like a specific place. And I think that like anytime, anytime it's a place that's just like not New York or LA, it's so fascinating to me. It's like something I think I appreciated once I got older, because I think for, you know, for a while I was just like, oh, well, there are only that many places that are like interesting in the world according to TV. And so that's also how I felt about it. But I think sort of observing and consuming stories that are more grounded in really interesting pockets of places like I remember like watching a Minari when it came out was so astounding to me because there are just little parts of it that I was like oh you know like I didn't grow up in Arkansas but I really love almost this like almost this like geographic immersion into this place and time and I think it took me a really long time to realize that like 
you know, I always thought coming from Dunlap and Peoria, it was like as bland as possible of a place. Like, what could you possibly say <laughs> about it? But I think, you know, in the past few years, especially during the pandemic when I couldn't really go home, like the height of it, I've since, I think, developed an appreciation for it. Like, oh, this is a place too. You know, like this has its own like culture and inside jokes and history. And I think I think that's kind of part of just like getting older in your 20s and sort of really putting the pieces together of, of where you came from. Because I think when you're in the moment, it's like, you know, it's almost like you're whatever they say about like you don't realize water is wet you're just like this is just how life is you know and then you finally go somewhere else and you're like oh I didn't realize actually that like it's like it's funny to notice that the whole like like town smells today and that's what everyone's going to talk about (laughs) and I, I read too that you because you work as a journalist you are much like Audrey in the book a New Yorker yeah. You know, raised in the Midwest, but moved to New York, have pursued journalism. You're a writer for Vanity Fair. Yeah. So you've got, I think, you know, what's the way of putting it? It's like a fancy existence. Oh, for sure. In some ways, you know, compared <laughs> to like maybe some of the things that you could have done back home, I guess, or that might be. I don't want to denigrate, you know, I don't want to denigrate life back home. I'm just saying that like you moved to New York, you're working for this big national magazine and you've got a lot of like day-to-day responsibilities and wrote the book in the midst of all that. And I read that you used an Excel spreadsheet yeah. as, a, as a way of like enforcing accountability on yourself to get this book done. A lot of my listeners are writers, so I'd love to just hear you talk about how you did it so that they can hear so people have asked me a lot they're like oh my god like you know how did you have a writing job and you wrote a novel and the super like obvious easy answer is I was like oh I didn't have this job when I was writing the novel I think what happened was it was like I I wrote it and then I sold it and then I started this job at Vanity Fair almost like a few weeks after I sold it because I don't think I sort of very much believe that like you only have so much like creative juice per day, per week. So I, in that, in sort of in that sense, I was very lucky that I was working. I was working at my old job at BuzzFeed and it wasn't a writing job. It was sort of more like analytics and um, more like left brain stuff. And I really loved it. But I think otherwise, like, you know, had it been really creative and um, intensive in that way, like I couldn't have done this. So I, I always try to like, I'm like people are like, oh my god, how'd you do it? And I'm like, oh no, I didn't. Don't worry. But I think maybe like going along with that kind of like, like analytics role. I was like working with with like Excel a lot, and I had done a little bit of freelancing, and so I kind of had a sense, this height idea of like, oh, here's kind of how I carve out time to work on side projects. I noticed that like. Saturday mornings were good because it was like, you know, you, no one wants to work like an eight hour day and then like do more, do more creativity. Um, and so I kind of found like, okay, I think my sweet spot is like Saturday mornings. Maybe I'll just a lot like two hours every Saturday to some kind of creative writing project. And the deal is like, I was like, if you just set your timer for two hours, even if you just sit in front of the computer and don't write a single thing. Then like for the rest of the week, 
you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to feel guilty. That's like your writing time. And so I started the Excel sheet just to sort of track those like Saturday hours, quote unquote. (laughs) And then just, I think like, so I, I use like Saturday hours for some like other projects like writing a short story early in 2019 and kind of figuring out what that process was like. And then I think it was like that fall, the fall of 2019, after I came home from a Thanksgiving break, I was sort of like, you know, I think I want to use this time to like kind of work on maybe this idea for a novel I have. I didn't really tell anyone I was doing it. And so sort of just this like, here's how we're going to fill this time that you already have slotted out. Um, and that you've made a habit of using like like over, I think, like that whole year. So that habit was already there. And then from there, I kind of realized that like, oh, I really like this idea of like almost feeling like I'm billing. I've got these like billable hours. I can spend two hours a week on this project and I'll just count them up. And then I think once the, it, the novel started really taking shape, I was like, oh, you know, I'm kind of finding little pockets of time during the week, like a Tuesday night. And so then I started, I just started playing this game with myself where I was almost like setting this schedule of like, I think this month we want to do, let's hit like, what is the math? So it's like two hours a week for a month that's like eight hours. And so I was like, let's set like an hourly goal and just do like 10 or 15 this coming month. And it was sort of nice because it gave me a little freedom to like adjust the schedule but then it was also kind of fun because my reward was like, if you hit, if you hit your hours, you get a week off. Like it was this really like intense game of like mind mind games with myself where I was like, how do we make this feel almost like like either a freelance job or even like a school semester where it's like, if you do it, you get time off. And for me, that was, I think, more motivating than the idea of like do a little bit every day because then there was sort of like a little bit of like a ramp, you know. Well, I think, okay, a couple of things. I think if you're trying to do it every day and you've got other things going on, mm-hmm. you're setting yourself up to fail. I think one of the yeah. mistakes that writers often make or people often make is that they have some goal that they want to achieve and then they give themselves an impossible schedule to keep yeah. in service of its attainment. And they just end up feeling like shit because they're like, oh, I'm not doing it. See, I didn't yeah. get my two hours in every day. So that's smart. You gave... you 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 made it fit into your life in a way that was sensible. Like yeah. you understood what the actual possibilities were and had like an accurate sense of it. And then the second thing that comes to mind for me, there's like this old like Jerry Seinfeld anecdote. Have you ever heard this where he had the calendar on the wall, like a paper calendar? Mm-hmm. And every day that he sat down, this was early in his career, every day that he sat down to write jokes in his little notebook, he would make an X in the calendar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it became very satisfying to make that X. Yeah. And his whole goal was just to like not break the string, you know, of X's yeah. on the calendar. And it could be that. It could be an Excel spreadsheet. It could be keeping a word count in your little journal or on your, you know, notes, uh, you know, on your phone or whatever it is. But the point is externalization. Like when you externalize yeah. your work, uh, you make yourself accountable to it it doesn't lie, right? That Excel spreadsheet doesn't lie. Yeah. (laughs) Makes it hard for you to lie to yourself, you know? Yeah. And then I sort of, it's sort of like, you know, if you don't have like, you know, a certain number of words or chapters or whatever to show for it, at least there's this kind of like satisfaction. Like I just, I took the most satisfaction, like 
really like tracking these hours and like making a little I made like a little graph I think one time I there was just something about that that kind of tickled my brain in just the right way where I was just like oh I feel like I'm productive even if maybe you know the actual like project itself might take months to really you know take any kind of form but I think so I think like yeah finding kind of the way to externalize it to yourself that just like makes you almost like prove to yourself like yeah you are doing the work you're doing you're keeping the practice or not however or not yeah or or you're taking a break right yeah so I also read that you published and I'm so unsavvy in the ways of social media you published like a publishing plan on your Instagram stories. Is this right? Like, did you, did you visualize this early on and kind of like put it up there for the world to see? So I had a sticky note that I just made for myself. I think, I think it was around the time. I can't remember if it was like when I wrote the short story and was sort of like that whole process I went through with Catapult and my dear editor, Matt Ortile there, that was the first time I think I had just done like like published something outside of journalism. And so the whole process kind of taught me like, here's how long it takes, you know, just for a story. And so I was trying to just like almost extrapolate that out where I was like, okay, well, if it took you a month to write this short story, like three months of editing, and then it was like three more months before it came out. Like I didn't, I just didn't know that much about publishing. And so I was trying to like do a little bit of research and just trying to project into the future. I was like, well, okay, like just hypothetically, what if we spent 2020 writing, writing the novel, maybe 2021, we sell it and edit it. Supposedly there's like a year that comes in between for like editing or whatever. And so it's like, would it be, would it come out 2023? Like would it come out? maybe 2024. And so I I wrote like some version of that on a sticky note. And then I think as things kind of started taking shape, I like would sort of adjust it and write a new sticky note. But it kind of helped me. I think it was like it was like exciting because it kind of helped me see like, here's like the the shape that these years are taking. But I was also I, I mean, I think I just got I was very lucky and pleasantly surprised to find that, oh, it actually I don't want to say it was that easy, but I was like, oh, so those those are the steps. And like in this case, it did work out that the timing was like, okay, roughly this much for, you know, working on it with an age with my agents and then roughly this much time for working on it with my editor and the publisher. And then sure enough, like about this much time just to sort of wait and promote it before it comes out. But yeah, that was kind of it was like a really interesting I'm trying to think like it was just it was a very private exercise I did I think originally but I just kept that sticky note by my bed because it, it was sort of one of those things where it's like you know day in and day out it doesn't seem like anything is happening but sort of seeing like here's like maybe what the next few years could be like was was very definitely satisfying and, you know and then sharing it on Instagram that might just be something we do these days we just share all sorts of things but yeah. I also think there's something to going public with one's aspirations like that that enforces mm-hmm. a certain accountability too because if it's just like a yes. pr- if it's a private dream that nobody knows about but you then nobody yeah. but you knows if you never go after it yeah. do you know what i'm saying but by putting yeah. it out there did that help to motivate you too because people knew 
I think I actually didn't post it on like I I posted on my Instagram stories like like fairly recently. So it was like a very retroactive like brag. Oh. I don't think I don't think I would have been confident enough to be like, all right, guys, 2019. Here's what the next few years of my life are gonna look like. Like that would have been. I wish I wish I was the kind of person who can be like, all right, here's the plan. I'm gonna go do it. You know. But I didn't know. I didn't know at the time. I was like, if this doesn't work out, I'm just gonna throw this sticky note away. Oh, okay. I was gonna say, well, that is like mm-hmm. like Babe Ruth calling his shot. I was like, that's very, oh my very God, impressive confidence. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's not. But me. I do think it is good, even if it's just verbalizing it to a friend, like, hey, I'm working on a novel or telling your parents or something, like something about saying it out loud to somebody that you care about and respect makes yeah. it hard to not do the work. It makes it harder, I should say, to not do the work because then you're sort of on the hook and they're going to ask you about it. Uh, yeah. Did you have any of yeah. that? Did you have any friends or family members who knew who were like checking in with you to see how it was going? I would say so. I I'm I have like, I'm co-represented by two agents, Jade and Carolina at Francis Golden. And I met Jade first, I think before I even started writing the novel, she had reached out to me and we we're just chatting and it was just one of those things where she was like, I saw your short story. Like, are you working on anything else? And at the time I was like, no. And she was just like, okay, well just like, let me know one day, like if you are. And so that was kind of really nice. Cause in the back of my head, I was like, well, that's actually really great to know because now I know if I'm going to take on, you know, writing a novel, one of the motivators in the back of my head is like, Oh, I want to have something to show Jade by like January 1st, 2021, you know, whether or not she knew I really meant it, you know, I'm sure at some point when I started writing, I like talked to my closest friends about it, but I think, I think I, for, for at least a while, I was like a little bit private about it. Kind of like I, like I would imagine when you're like are pregnant right. and you're just like, do I want to tell people? Yeah, yeah I get it. No, totally. Yeah. Like, are you going to share the name? You know, like that kind of thing. Right. Right. Uh, so you're co, and you, you mentioned that you're co-represented. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but you have two mm-hmm. agents who rep you. Yeah. I'm, I'm- it worked. It, it's like such a dream scenario because I met Jade first, really like, like talking to her, but she was at a different agency at the time when we first talked. And then I also had gotten connected with Caroline, Caroline Eisenman, who was at Francis Golden already, because she'd represented a friend's book. um, And I really loved that book. And so at the time, I was like, oh, definitely no, I want to submit this book to both Jade and Caroline. And it just worked out in this amazing way where like, when I sent it to both of them, Jade was like, I'm actually at Francis Golden now. And like, I, you know, I'm a junior agent and Caroline is a senior agent and she's essentially my mentor. And so he's like, oh, that's really lucky that that worked out. And then they came to me and they were like, what if we like co-represented you? And so I was sort of like, oh my God, can I have that? Like best of both worlds. I mean, yeah, that's kismet. Um, That's great. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And what was your friend's book? I'm curious, the the one that your agent, Caroline, had represented. It was Kyle Chayka's The Longing for Less. I think that came out beginning of 2020. Okay. Yeah. And he, he, like, he just told me, he's like, oh, I love working with Caroline. And so that was like just a name I'd had in my head for a while too. And I want to know, because like you said, you worked at BuzzFeed, you write for Vanity Fair, you live in New York, you know a lot of people in like New York media and circles, I would imagine, just by virtue of... I don't know, yeah. being there, it seems to be the way yeah. that it works. But yeah. what about, I feel like people who have worked like within, like either whether it's inside of a publishing house or have worked, like you said, you worked in analytics, people who've worked in publicity and marketing often have more savvy when it comes to getting their book launched. Uh, like there's the phrase like building a brand, you know, that a lot of people, yeah. including me, tend to, you know, recoil from. But it's yeah. there's some truth to it. There's some reality to it. Like, do you feel like the jobs that you've had and being in New York and maybe friendships that you've had have helped you cultivate a better understanding of how to do that? Oh, definitely. So I've lived in New York now for like seven years and I'm still kind of shocked by like how at the end of the day, especially within the media industry, it's like such a small, it's a small cafeteria. And so it was like, it kind of just, how do I want to say this? I think like when you work, when you work in media, it's very easy for that to really just be your social circles and people move around so much that you sort of end up knowing, you end up knowing someone who kind of works anywhere. Is that... Does that make sense? You end up knowing someone who works like almost like at any place in New York. Just it's just such a fishbowl. <laughs> well, I live in LA. I, I think, live in LA. I feel like Hollywood is sort oh, of similar. Okay. Like it's like kind of the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It was really lovely because starting out in media when I did Twitter was sort of such a gold mine in a way, just for meeting people and making friends. Like I ended up forming so many friendships in New York where I was just sort of like, hey, I follow you on Twitter. We seem to like like each other's stuff. Do you want to get coffee? Should we be like real friends? Um, That's that's unheard of. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? And then I also had, um, I started this like newsletter when I was in my first job. And I, it was like just a project I had for myself to like 
I don't know, like get practice. Like just, it was just like a, almost like a fun blog. Is this, that is I this had D's myself. links? Yeah. Yeah. And I added this like Q and a, like Friday Q and a segment because I thought that would be like less work for some reason mm-hmm. than just like writing a Friday thing. Cause I was trying to do like a little small thing every day. And that ended up being, oh my God, that was like a secret weapon for meeting people because I could just reach out to someone that I didn't even really know, but I would be like, oh, can I like interview for my newsletter? And like everyone, especially in media wants to be interviewed. <laughs> so that was like just a perfect excuse to kind of like form relationships and form a network and Buzz working at BuzzFeed supercharged that because everyone there is really, I think, obsessed with like making stuff on the internet and figuring out how to like how to like figuring out how to make stuff that people will really resonate with. And so Yeah, how, how like, do you do that, by the way? Do you know? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um I just remember like there's so many different like schools of thought within like the BuzzFeed like institution. But one of my favorite things that we learned was just like to always consider like I think this is something that is is relevant to journalism or really like any kind of media, but it just sounds it sounds icky because in journalism you're thinking about like what service is, you know, my journalism performing, but we talked about content at BuzzFeed and like what job a piece of content had. And like we there was like a whole taxonomy for it. And we talked about like this kind of content does this job for these people. And so much of it was just like, you know, kind of thinking a lot about why would someone share this? People share things because they want that piece of content to do a job for them, whether it's just to be like, like how great my life is or look how plugged in to this specific issue I am or even just to be like, hey, like I'm a left handed person and this quiz, you know, lets me sharing the results of this quiz of being left-handed or an introvert lets me talk about that. And so we were like, so I think that was really interesting to kind of just consider the psychology of like, why are people online? Why are people posting, you know? But it also just like the reality of working at BuzzFeed was also you ended up meeting and befriending a lot of people who had a big following on, on social media, on the internet, and then they would go on maybe to other places. So the BuzzFeed alumni network was also just itself very powerful. I'm always, I'm forever fascinated by like what goes viral and who goes viral and who gets a big following. Mm-hmm. It seems so arbitrary to me. And yet at, I think it is, yeah. at times I can be, but at, at other times I can be like, you know what, maybe I am just being like a sore loser about it. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is like in terms of like why some people just say anything on social media and everyone's just like, yay. <laughs> and like yeah, other, other know, people right? say like something maybe better than that in my view. And they just get like no reciprocity at all. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, you want to know one of my, I think, I think this is like a theory I have about Twitter, although Twitter is so different now, it might not hold, but for a while I had kind of conducted this like personal experiment where I was like, if you tweet something kind of like normy, like just like a joke about your breakfast sandwich or like, I don't even know, like just something that's very like quotidian. If you tweet that on like a Saturday morning, it does pretty well, 
And that was just like a pet theory I had in my head that I was like, I think this might be a thing because I've seen it happen for myself a few times. And then I'm kind of retrofitting like, like reasons why where I was like, well, you know, the brands and like the publishers are not as active on weekends. But I think there's also something to like people wake up in the morning and they just have a little more time to read the timeline. So it's like this mishmash, I think, of like coming up with some theory that you could like test and trying to think through like why would this be but I also just like another like now now you're now I'm just like deep into my like Twitter conspiracy theories but what what you you mean you mean since Elon took over that or is that what you mean or (laughs) oh no just like like now you're kind of finding out like how deeply I think about like why does a tweet do well yeah but but you know what (laughs) I like there was no part of me that uh, like otherized that uh, inclination. I'm exactly the same way. I think it's so normal yeah. for anybody on Twitter to like wonder how it works. Like, right? especially people who are, are like content creators and are like trying to mm-hmm. spread the gospel or whatever about their work. And it's like, it can get frustrating. And, and it also nowadays yeah. too, with the algorithm, it's like, I have yeah. 7,000 something followers for the podcast. I post something and I feel like 200 people see it. And it's like, What's yeah. the point of this? I thought, why, why get all these followers if they're not going to see what you put up? It seems pointless. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think this is sort of like the myth and like the um, appeal almost of like figuring out social media because it seems like at least for certain pockets of time, you could test the theory out and really benefit from it. Like I think I just read some story about how like when Instagram Reels first rolled out, a very small like fraction of people figured out like you could make the dumbest reels but instagram was so like thirsty to promote them that like any reel you made would get like you know it would just do amazing numbers and so they just turned it themselves into like reels making machines but the crazy thing is is that like because the rules change so quickly that like it's it's like the game is like you're trying to figure out where these little like gold rushes of opportunity are and sometimes they're real and sometimes they're totally arbitrary and it feels like I just I think a lot about um I think Max Reed wrote this thing for New York magazine a few years ago where he was just like if you think about how in ancient times like people labored so hard to just figure out like how do we please the gods like is it (laughs) this kind of sacrifice do I need to you know have this festival like you know they're trying to like correlate like you know having a prosperous life with like, maybe I just have to sacrifice this kind of animal on this day. And Max was just made this brilliant argument where he's like, our like the algorithms are now our like mythological gods and we have no idea how to satisfy them, but we're working so hard to try to figure it out, you know, and try to be like, Oh, this is a thing. And it's like, who's to say? (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. And now Elon is like gaming Twitter so that everybody has to see his stupid tweets. And yes. I know. I love that even he was like, why isn't anyone seeing? Like, I feel like more people should see my <laughs> right. tweets. I love yeah, that. Yeah, right? It's because you broke the site. You know, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> so I know you've done, because I mean, we're kind of talking about it right now. You, you work in New York media circles and you, I know you've done a lot of press for your book already. I, I love to catch authors early rather than late in a press tour because I feel like at a certain point you've talked about yourself and your book so much that you're just sort of like talked out. So sensitive to how many interviews you've already done and sensitive to like the way that these things can get 
repetitive. I am going to try something new with respect to your book, which we haven't, you know, we've mm-hmm. touched on, but we haven't really dug into yet. So I thought it might be interesting. I don't think I've ever done this before, but as I read your book, I kind of had my phone in one hand and whenever I had mm-hmm. any kind of reaction, it's like the sort of thing I might tweet, you know, but it was just like little pithy mm-hmm. reactions as I was going. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read those. <laughs> oh my God. And then we can discuss. And okay. some might be better than others. Okay. So are you on board? You're okay. on board with this? Like you understand? Yeah, oh. I love this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one that I wrote down is I wrote how different people can be from one stage of life to the next, the childhood me versus the adult me. And that's obviously central to central places. Mm-hmm. Audrey Joe, and it, that, that's the pro- mm-hmm. pronunciation, Audrey Joe, because yeah. it's that that is yeah. a thing in the book is how people screwed up yeah. her name growing up. So it's Audrey Joe, and she has to confront her childhood self and the way that it maybe contradicts or collides with her new adult self that she's worked hard to cultivate. That's the way we are, though. I feel so distant. Mm-hmm. Like I grew up in the Midwest, much like you, but my parents then moved away when I was in college. So oh. I lost it entirely. I've never been back. Yeah. I've never been to a high school reunion. I don't go back yeah. for the holidays. I haven't seen anybody since graduation. Oh my God. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird to like- Do you feel sad about that? I do. I do. I feel yeah. sad. I moved away from Milwaukee when I was in sixth grade. So I sort of okay. lost that home base. Yeah. And then I left Indiana to go to college, never to return. Yeah. So I just feel like rootless. You know what I'm saying? I don't have yeah. any. I don't have any contact with it. But I look back, and I have also a notoriously shitty memory. So I don't remember that much about mm-hmm. my youth in the way that like my wife does. She'll be like, "I'll never forget wearing that cable knit sweater on that day," and you know, I'm like, "What?" Like you, I don't remember anything like that. But I do have bits and pieces. And I just feel like I'm so much different than the high school version of me. I think back on my high school self and I'm like, I was basically just terrified the whole time. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. everybody probably feels like that, but I don't love everything about myself from that era. And I'm happy to have moved on. That's pretty mm-hmm. normal, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, anybody yeah. who's like, I nailed it at age 15. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that... uh I think like what's so interesting is the way that they really do feel oftentimes like two totally different beings, like this version Mm -hmm. of yourself versus versus that version of yourself. It's like, are we even the same? Mm -hmm. Where do you land on that? Like, you know, that was a long winded way of of asking, but it, uh, it feels so integral to what you're exploring. I love like thinking about stuff like that. Like I'm a big, (laughs) big watcher of like sort of like self-help TikToks. There's a lot of like really silly but also interesting ways I think where people grapple with stuff and and I just remember there was one there's this one video I watched where someone was like I don't think you ever like so this is this is on my mind because I'm turning 30 in a few weeks oh my god and... you're so young <laughs> thanks thank you for saying that but they were saying like I think it was on the topic of birthdays so TikTok new I guess but they were saying like I don't think you ever you know I don't think you turn 30 I think you sort of like it's almost like a Russian nesting doll situation where then you like grow into your 30-year-old self but your five-year-old self is still inside your 29-year-old self is still inside 
And every now and then those guys come busting out. Like when I, you know, when I'm home in my parents' house, my parents also moved houses, but not neighborhoods when I went to college. They like upgraded, which is really hilarious. It's usually the other direction, right? Right, right. They're like, now we can live the life we want. (laughs) (laughs) Now that she's gone. Yeah. But like, so when I'm in my parents' house, I don't, it's not as acute as like, I think when I went home for college and I was like, here's my childhood bedroom, but I can feel that like 17 year old self coming out and just being like, oh my God, mom, like we've had this conversation a million times and you know, that part becomes activated. So that's why I'm so curious about the fact that you've never really been back to where you grew up because I would be curious if like, then you would feel maybe those parts activated by like that context, you know? I'm sure I would. I'm sure yeah. I would. I think I think I might be going back to Indiana this spring for like my niece's high school graduation. That's how fucking oh. old I am. Yeah. So then it's like full circle, the circle <laughs> yeah. of life, you know? Yeah. So I will. And like the thing too is that you get so busy with festivities and familial obligations that like I hope I get a chance to just go explore. And then yep. also my my hometown in Wisconsin, I went back like three or four years ago but it was so quick because we were rushed and like we drove to our old house and I stood there for the first time in like almost 30 years. It was mm-hmm. wild. It was, oh, I, wow. I loved it. Yeah. I, lo- I wanted to just stay and like walk around and like yeah. everything, everything there for me stopped when I was 11. So my 11 yeah. year old self was sort of like there with me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. And I have some very fond memories of Wisconsin, Indiana a bit less so, but I always have to, asterisk that and say, well, I was an adolescent there. So yeah, I think wherever you are, when you're 15, you're sort of like disgruntled. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing that I wrote as I was reading was the chivalry of Ben exclamation point, the movie date. <laughs> ben is Audrey's boyfriend in New York. He's like a lifelong New Yorker from this like upper East side, I think family, mm-hmm. right? His parents are wealthy and he's like a cool photographer who's like you know he goes to like danger zones he's like a journal a photojournalist Mm -hmm. and they go on this date to the movies and what like the thing that i'm remembering is him it's raining afterwards and he like holds his coat up for her Mm -hmm. but there are other things he did i was just very impressed by how smooth this guy was (laughs) i know right but it's easy to be smooth when you're on your home turf is kind of what i slowly figured out i think by like in sort of exploring this character, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he's he's got the home field advantage. But I kind of, I mean, I love that about him because I think that sort of reflects like just a lot of people, a lot of like guys that I know who just have this kind of like confidence where wherever they are. But I was, I think through writing Ben, I was like starting to question it a little bit where I was like, yeah, but like, are they always like this? Or is this because like, they lived here for years, they know exactly how to, how this goes, like, they know exactly how to handle, you know, like somebody coming up on the street and like asking them for money, because they probably grew up knowing how to handle that. But like for Audrey, who's still kind of an outsider, she's like, oh, you know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. All right. So I have a, then the next thing I wrote was a question about guest slippers. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah. So, like, just to kind of bring listeners along, Audrey and Ben 
go back for the holidays. It's kind of like meet the parents. He's going back to meet her parents for the first time. Mm-hmm. She She's tense because she has like this difficult relationship with her mother in particular. And she's like mm-hmm. bringing the New York City boyfriend back to this tiny town in the Midwest and so on. And I think in Chinese culture, maybe in other cultures too, like I had a friend who's from Scandinavia. You always took your, your shoes off at the door. Yeah. But I just have a question about guest slippers. Like if you have slippers for your guests to wear around the house, are there, like, do you buy them new whenever you're going to have guests or do you wash them? (laughs) So I'm trying to think, what do my parents do? I think they, my parents just have like a set, like a few sets of guest slippers. Um, But we don't have like we didn't have that many visitors. So I don't know if like maybe if you are in a more social household, you just have a bunch of maybe like disposable ones or whatever, but we just kind of have them. Cause I think the assumption is like you, you're wearing socks. Okay. Um, yeah. In the mid in the Midwest, <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. like people bare feet. I'm just like, well, what do you, do, do, you know, do you need to get new ones for people? Because yeah, yeah. I aspire to having a house. It, it makes sense to not wear your shoes in the house. Yeah. But I'm bad about it. Our entire house, you know, no one in our house abides so by that rule. It. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, but then it's like it's kind of as filthy if you think about it. What what are the yeah. bottoms of your shoes touching? But I just wondered about the guest slipper situation because yeah. I, uh, we don't have any. Maybe I should get some. <laughs> like, yo, you, you definitely should. It's kind of fun. Like, I I think like if I get like a sort of real place of my own, I would do that. But like, I'm I can picture it now in my parents house where it's like by the front door there's just like a shoe rack and it's just like everyone's slippers plus like a bunch of extra ones I think when my grandma comes to visit she gets like she has her usual pair I think if we have like like I bet if I brought someone home my parents would get like a new pair for them you know so it's sort of like it, it kind of depends but like I, like I don't get a new pair when I go home, but I have my preferred pair. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next thing I wrote down, matcha latte obsession. Oh yeah. This is very like, sometimes I, like when I reread this book, I was like, this is very 26 year old me <laughs> wrote this. Listen, she was so cool. I'm, I'm, I'm 47, right? Yeah. I love matcha lattes. Yeah. I love them. Like They kind of just became everywhere i think in the past few years and so but i just remember like like getting really into them when i like moved to new york and then i'd go back to Peoria, and i'd sort of there was a point where i was sort of like i don't think they're here yet and then the next year they were at starbucks and i was like wow that was really fast you know yeah yeah well i see i'm Mm anti-coffee i think coffee is uh it's 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 lesser I think yeah. I understand that like coffee beans smell good. I understand the uh, as the, you know some of the aesthetic allure, but I think that the high, the caffeine high, makes you jittery and sort of cracked out, and there's a crash. Yeah, and then it leaves an awful taste in your mouth. Like a mm-hmm. coffee breath is gross. Yeah, and I so can't do coffee, so I'm I'm with you there. Yeah, matcha way better. Yeah, uh, matcha lattes delicious. I drink yerba mate, this like South American green Ooh. tea. Which really I, good. for my whole adult life, and like the the high, I will go to bat for as being like like it's it delivers a powerful kick, but it's smooth. Okay. I don't know exactly why. It's like some combination of like micronutrients. It's like just this shrub that grows in the rainforests. You know, it's literally just mm-hmm. that. So it's an acquired taste. But like if you think about it, so is coffee. Like what is yeah. coffee? It's just like this brown 
water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yerba, yerba mate actually neutralizes bad breath uh, in a very Ooh. real way. So like not only is the high better, but it doesn't leave any kind of gross taste in your mouth. So anyway, I responded very strongly to like matcha latte. I was pleased that Audrey was into them. Oh, I love that. <laughs> tell that I care a lot about this issue. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing I wrote down is like reflection or rehearsal or neither. Mm. And I think you already mentioned this very briefly. Like I was wondering like, oh, wow. I'm wondering if Delia is like re reflecting on a time when she brought home a fiance or a potential fiance and is kind of writing from that experience, or if it was maybe some sort of like psychological rehearsal, like an imagined process of doing that. And it seems like it's, I think you touched on it earlier. It's the rehearsal, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a really good way to frame that question. It's funny because when I was, I had like a launch event in New York a couple of weeks ago and someone asked me and they're like, what are you going to do? Because, because I think at one point I said like, oh, you know, this novel is emotionally true. Every thought Audrey's had, I've had, but I haven't like actually lived through these events. I haven't brought someone home. And someone was like, what do you think is going to happen when you get to that point? And I was like, I really don't know. <laughs> right. Um I guess we would read this book first and then, you know, that would be sort of a manual. But I think I sort of think of the novel in terms of like, like one big hypothetical where it was like, okay, if like my life just happened to branch in a few different ways, what would that look like? And so just for myself, it was kind of really a really like introspective way to answer some questions while also kind of just like coming up with some cohesive theory of like, here's how I feel about where I grow up. But it's kind of funny to think about like, in in a, in a way, like having forecasted the scenario and then not knowing like, what will it be like when I do it? <laughs> right. If I do it, yeah. Yeah, but I think that the process of writing it and like the active, like the deep imagination of it has to do well to prepare you in some sense, or mm -hmm. to like help you process maybe the more difficult parts of it. I feel like you'll be more ready. I'm not, it's not that it's going to go perfectly, but like, I yeah. feel like in the absence of having written this book, it would probably be a little bit harder, right? Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, like, I, yeah, yeah, that's like, I think what I want to say about that. But I was also just like, for Audrey to not have gone home for eight years, I think was also a nice point of difference because because like I I like it's it will be way less dramatic for me because <laughs> you go home every year for Thanksgiving yeah. I read yeah like you're a, you're yeah like eight years is a long time to not go home yeah yeah but that was the right choice for the novel because it made it more dramatic when she finally did yeah so the next thing that I wrote down Roman Holiday Audrey Hepburn Audrey is named after Audrey Hepburn yeah. Right. Or at least like that was the inspiration. Her parents saw Roman Holiday. Yeah. She, like her, like, like canonically, she's named after Audrey Hepburn. For me, I just, I just like in college, I had this really confident, like amazing, successful friend, Audrey. And so I just was always like, I love that name. To me, she calls to mind this like idea of a very self assured person. So I just like had saved that name for a while. But I also like love, I mean, like, my, my mom loves Audrey Hepburn movies, and I think we watched Roman Holiday, 
not physically together because it was during like quarantine and I was like I've never seen this movie before I guess I'll finally watch it because she talks about it all the time and I just I yeah I loved it and I kind of like the tie because she's sort of in the movie she's going on like a little trip and that changes everything right mm. I love Audrey Hepburn too like she feels like a kind the kind of person who doesn't exist anymore or something like yeah. there's some, something so kind and warm about like whatever she's projecting but also so like regal and there's nothing pristine like her aesthetic her design like and mm -hmm. yet there's nothing chilly about her it's this weird combination she's so warm you know you, you just like yeah. her and you want to be buddies with her and yet she feels like uh royalty yeah so the next thing i wrote down was papyrus font in the bar <laughs> <laughs> there's this bar in the town called Sullivan's, mm -hmm. which is like the bar in the town that everybody goes to, right? When yeah. they're home for the holidays. And is it papyrus or papyrus? I don't even know how to pronounce it, but uh, this yeah, is- I call a, it papyrus. Yeah. So papyrus is a specific font. And what the reason I think I wrote it down is that I always associate papyrus font, and this might out me as like a longtime Los Angelino, but it feels like the kind of font you see at, on like the menu at like a grab-and-go vegan restaurant or like a yoga studio mm -hmm. it has like some vague like spiritual connotation to it oh that's interesting so i was like interesting that like sullivan's also had the papyrus font happening <laughs> that's really interesting i didn't know like i think that detail just sort of came out of like like looking at the bulletin board at panera or something in my hometown and just sort of like, I, I think it's really funny being in in Brooklyn, in New York, in just sort of like the millennial cohort where I think like there's a very distinct aesthetic. And I think once it feels like um like there's a very distinct aesthetic and everything is so like like the subway ads all look the same. Um, everything is kind of really, I think, concerned with looking, designing that, like, I think they call it like the Tennessee aesthetic or whatever, the Nashville aesthetic. Wait, I don't even know what this is. What is it? It's like, it's just like that flat, like bright colors, sort of like for like Warby Parker or Casper, like that kind of just look that I just sort of feel like I'm just like, oh, it's like taken over. But then, like, I'll go home and sort of look at, like, real-world scenarios. And it's, like, everyone's still using Comic Sans and Papyrus. And I kind of love that because it suggests just enough effort to sort of be, like, I want to make this look kind of nice. But, like, this total, like, rejection or lack or just sort of, like, an affiliation with this more, like, just kind of with this more, like, branded capitalist like, capitalist like brandy look and i don't know, like that stuff just like looks more real to me and it just it like it's something that like i think whenever i notice it on even like a sign at a restaurant it like just like touches me a little bit because i'm like oh someone cared enough but they're not a graphic designer and i kind of love this more because of that it just it's like the effort that it kind of shows of like what could possibly be a good font for my you know <laughs> guitar lesson ad right <laughs> Right. Papyrus. Yeah. Yeah, I've just, I've found, I mean, all that stuff, all that hyper design capitalist stuff. Like I get it. It feels maybe more human, yeah. like less mean. There's something cold about yeah. these very, like, and the way they all mimic each other and are trying to be one another and capture people's attention and get eyeballs. Like somebody who's using papyrus isn't really 
doesn't care that much. Yeah, they do not care, <laughs> which I, I love. Yeah. I was going to say, and bless them for that. So then the next thing I wrote was the song Wagon Wheel. I, oh I didn't Google it. I didn't Google it because I wanted yeah. to save myself for this moment in time. But like, what is Wagon Wheel? Is this a country song? Oh, yeah. So I don't even think, I always get it mixed up. It's like there's a Darius Rucker version. Well, let me just Google that, make sure I didn't. Of uh, from uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, that guy. Yeah. Okay. And then there's um, an old Crow Medicine Show version. I want to say Darius Rucker's is like the original one. Would you? Oh. Can you? Can you sing it? What is? How does it go? Oh no! <laughs> I I refuse to sing it. Okay, so these are all cover. I'm just reading Google now. I'm like, who originally wrote the song? Oh my god! Okay, I sound really dumb. It's a song co-written by Bob Dylan. And oh. a member of Old Crow Medicine Show. Wow. Okay, but Didn't it's big. It, it's it's big in your hometown. I would I take it. It's big. It's big in my. It was big at school at the University of Missouri. Like that was like on the same level as like Sweet Caroline. Wow. Or okay. I can't even think of an equivalent. But it was just one of those songs that I think has been has loomed so large in my head. And then it's like the minute I'll like talk to someone who didn't grow up anywhere near, I think the Midwest are just like, I've never heard of that song before. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That kind of reminds me of when I was growing up in Indiana. We like in high school, we would get drunk and like listen to Garth Brooks, like semi-ironically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like that song, Low Places, do you know that song? Like I've yeah, got friends. And, yeah, that's my like, karaoke song. Okay. <laughs> See, yeah. there we go. So yeah, but that was like of my time. Maybe had like a similar like a similar functionality to wagon wheel definitely where it's just like it's in the air you don't even seek it out you just unwillingly learn the words and then you don't realize that you know what until like i don't know it comes on at a random time and you're like oh my god you and you're know? at sullivan's and you've had like seven shots and you're like yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh all right so the next thing i wrote is has she read the entire bible because Audrey kind of grew up in a religious household and and I believe has read the entire Bible. I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm always fascinated when anyone has read the entire Bible. Oh my God. I was a really religious teenager because youth group was like the center of, I think, being social in any form. So I, yeah, the, <laughs> I read the entire Bible, I think, wow. at some point in high school. Sort of the same where I was like, I'm just going to do a little bit every night. And just figure out, like, like I was kind of was intrigued. Where I was like, is there anything in here that, like, I just haven't heard about yet? Like, like I kind of just want to know roughly all, like, the highlights, you know. It was <laughs> mostly very boring. Like, all the parts when they're, like, giving directions on how to build, like, a tabernacle. I was like, this? This is what we're, what we're so obsessed with? What's so crazy to me, because I grew up in a Catholic household, though mm -hmm. I was kind of out of it from an early age, but I was always surrounded by it. And I'm always fascinated about Christianity 
is the fact that there are all these people, millions of people who have built their lives around this religion. Mm-hmm. I would guess, and I'm only, I can only guess, but I have to believe that like over 90% of them have not even read the Bible. <laughs> right. That, yeah. seems, that seems crazy to me. Like you'd be like, yeah, this is it. I figured it out. I got it. Have you read the book? No, but I know it's true. You I know? got the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> got the highlights. Yeah. So I'm wondering like, so like if you like Goodreads ratings, like if you're rating and reviewing the Bible on Goodreads, like, is it three stars, three and a half? Like where, how we. Oh man. I just remember being, I just, it was not what I expected. I remember when I read it, I was like, I thought, like, I kind of read it with no real, like, aid. And so I, I just thought maybe it would actually read, like, like a real, like, like a, like a full kind of narrative. And I was sort of like, oh, this is not that at all. This is really, like, a collection of, like, very different, like, texts. But there were some parts that I was, like, super rocked. Like, there were some sections where they trace the lineage uh, from Adam to Jesus. And I remember being like, they have this written down? Like, this is in the record? That's crazy. <laughs> that blew my mind because no one had told me that existed, you know? <laughs> but I mean, is it real? They really, I don't even, I, I'm suspicious right. that this is actual. I know, but I was sort of like, wow. That, that like, to me, that was very impressive as a teenager because at least, like, in, as a storytelling convention, I was like, okay, I see it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a way that you depict Audrey and her mother, because her mother is, I think, the instigator of the religious bent of their household. Like, she's the one who's most into it. Mm-hmm. But there was a way that you characterized Audrey and her mom, who are at odds throughout this book. You know, there, there's like this, it's a tense but loving relationship, ultimately loving relationship. And you say that Audrey is religious, quote, to fit in. Mm-hmm. And her mom is religious, quote, because she wants like tried and true rules Mm-hmm. to like use to, I don't know, smooth out her experience of life in a world that's totally chaotic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that rang true to me. Like some people are like, oh, you know what? Like youth group is a big deal. A lot of my friends are in it. This is like my social milieu. Mm-hmm. And then there, I think there are people for whom religion is like this. I'm fucking scared. I need something. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. Like the world is crazy. Like give me the rules. I get that on a certain level but they have to make sense to me, like, you know, in a deep way. I can't just like have arbitrary rules, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just remember that's why I think I was so into it starting, I think like in middle school or whatever, because it's like, that's when you're sort of firming up your own like moral code. And so I remember for me, I was like, well, okay, this religion I can really count on because there's a lot of like, seems like it's got, you know, some good, some good ratings. Some it's like you know got a long history. Yeah, and I think the idea of like guaranteed results if you just do this, I was sort of like, yeah, like I can't. I'm not mature enough to really wrestle with these questions on my own. Let me just like adopt this belief system and like find a lot of comfort. I think in the rules and, and examples and whatever. But also, like, youth group was fun, and that was how I would go there to meet boys who were in high school when I was in middle school to be like, oh, like this is how you hang out with guys. Like, So it was, yeah. like, both for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, going to church, like, the instances when I would go as a teenager. Like, I had to go a lot when I was little, but then eventually I was like, no. And then mm-hmm. my parents eventually gave up. But I do remember my friends and I, like, my guy friends and I would go to church. 
the only thing you would be doing is like looking around like for the cute girls. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the entire <laughs> ball game, you know, but yeah. it's just an interesting point. It's one that I don't think gets made often enough is that people have very, very varied reasons for being religious mm-hmm. or for indulging like a religious impulse. And some of those reasons can even be strange. Um, yeah. But it's like, you know, I think maybe from the outside looking in, it's like, well, this person is just a firm believer and they've really investigated this and this is where they've landed in their lives. And more often than not, it's like a social or an emotional reason Mm -hmm. rather than like some deep spiritual reason. Uh, And I found that, I don't know, I found that recognizable. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. So the next thing that I wrote down Ben's diet of, quote, fast, casual salads and Soylent, end quote. So this was the first. And then then below that, I wrote, first time I've begun to seriously doubt him. <laughs> this is it. This is the point. This is the point in the book where I was like, oh, he's into it. Like he eats fast, casual salads and Soylent. I was like, this could be a problem. And then, at, then, I, then below that, I wrote, while also thinking, somewhat like me. <laughs> so I recoiled from Ben at this moment while also recognizing myself and him, though I have never tried Soylent, but like I'm a vegetarian. I have been my whole life. I'm like, for anybody who has listened to this show, they know that like I'm incredibly susceptible to any kind of health trend or take or like Instagram ad about how to get rid of like you know, get gut, get improve your gut health, like all that shit. Like, I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay, what do I do? Like, I'm very impressionable in that way. But uh, I have not tried Soylent. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. I've never tried it either, to be honest. Oh. <laughs> but I've, I've just seen, I've like seen people who are into it and I was just like, I don't get it, man. But sometimes, sometimes I, I'm sort of like, oh, I can understand the appeal. Like working from home, every day for years, I would rather jump out the window than make another sandwich, you know? <laughs> right. Right. But I, I think, I think like there is a point at which for me and everybody has different, like this point I think is different for everybody, but it's like this biohacking thing where yeah. people are trying to sort of like outsmart life and like, it's like all of these efficiencies, right? I'm mm-hmm. trying to be efficient. I'm going to get the maximum health in the quickest amount of time for the least amount of money. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point for me, I'm like, this is just joyless. Like, mm-hmm. like I'd rather make the sandwich. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know. I know. I love that you picked up that detail because I think for Ben, it's sort of a clue of like, he's, he does think he's a little bit better at this, at life. I think he's, he thinks he's like hacked it a little bit, you know? And let's see. The next thing I wrote, Alex Bentley, obligatory opiate overdose. And I only mean this in the Midwestern sense and like the epidemic Mm -hmm. of opiate overdoses, like one of my best friends from growing up, opiate overdose, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's wild. Like everybody who grew up, I think particularly in the flyover states is like less than six degrees of separation away from an accidental opiate overdose, right? Yeah. It's, it was, it was like in a way where I was sort of like, is this like tropey, you know, like, is this kind of like we said, is this like the obligatory, obligatory overdose? And is that sort of almost like a stereotype, but it is kind of incredible to think like, I just, I remember like not being really aware of it growing up, 
But then I think when the crisis got more news, I just like the kind of the wildest thing happened where someone I knew was doing a story about, I think, like what I think a group of mothers were doing who had lost kids to an overdose. And I was reading the article and I it was like I was like one of these kids I grew up with. I know this kid. And just like a total like random, like out of all, you know, the people that this person I know in New York could have interviewed. Like I had no involvement with this, you know, like out of all the people, here's like someone I literally grew up with. And I actually hadn't known that that happened to this person. And so it was sort of really shocking in in terms of like, oh, like, I don't know, the fact that, like, it hit home, like, that phrase doesn't even capture how, like, I think entrenched it it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I feel like there, there's a book I read years ago called Methland. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. read that one. But it's like, it's a, it's like a case study, essentially, of the meth epidemic, which I think tracks on a kind of parallel line with the opiate epidemic and the way that it in particular affects like small towns in flyover states and in the Midwest. And I think it was like old, a town called Olwine, Iowa. I could have that wrong, but I bet if you read it, it would strike a chord, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, uh, it like unpacks like why these kinds of towns get hit harder, you know, mm-hmm. by this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, I had to flag it, you know, I recognize that too. So the next thing I wrote down is, quote, do you guys even have Uber here? Which is Ben, the New Yorker. And then underneath that, I wrote, starting to feel, quote, Team Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was when I officially yes. started to break up with Ben. I was like, Ben, like, I can't abide this. Like, you know, because I get it. Like, I get how that could like slip out of somebody's mouth, including mine, maybe if I were in like a super small town. Mm-hmm. it's actually kind of a natural question you know like do you have uber mm-hmm. but it's an easy way to step in it too if they've had uber since like 2010 <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah so i just want to let, let you know that was when it officially ended for me and ben uh, <laughs> I, I don't know about you <laughs> yeah i think i think that that chapter is like definitely when things when things change yeah um, that's so funny uh, <laughs> the next thing i wrote down would be funny if Ben went to California and quickly died in the wildfires. Um, oh, which I is know. Just... That would have really changed things. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a photojournalist. For people listening, he gets an assignment in the midst of this trip over the holidays to cover California wildfires. And I don't mean to be cruel, but it was just like as a plot thing, I was like, mm-hmm. wow, what if he left and was you know instantly lost? Like, How would that leave things? So the next thing I wrote, I told you this was going to be random. Like this is literally just me typing with my thumbs into my phone. This is like uh, so nice though, because this is all the stuff that's like when you're in the midst of writing, you're just like, who is even like, no one is ever going to talk to you about this part, you know, even though you're really into it. So this is kind of like a dream. Well, and this is also hopefully a little bit different from the other interviews you've been doing. Yeah, so definitely. Then the next thing I wrote was Kyle at the Olive Garden, quote, oh, you guys got the Alfredo. Why I love that line so much, like where Kyle, who is, we should orient listeners, Kyle Weber is uh, Audrey's high school crush. He is dimpled. He is easygoing, sweet. Mm-hmm. He's the high school crush. He's the, yeah. like, the perfect guy from high school that she 
was so into and they like almost dated like it was like they kind of mm -hmm. circled each other but they couldn't they couldn't uh actualize the the love you know in high school which feels recognizable it's the kind of thing that happens right you don't have the emotional vocabulary for it or you're too scared because mm -hmm. it's too real or whatever it is and then she's seeing him back in her hometown for the first time in like a decade and they're out to dinner she her parents and her fiance and Kyle comes over and he's like so nice. He's with his mom, Fran. I think it's Fran. Mm -hmm. And he just like looks at the parents' plates and he's like, oh, you guys got the Alfredo. <laughs> I don't know why I love that, but I just thought, I don't know if you meant that as a funny line, but it made me laugh. I thought it was great. Yeah. Oh, I really love that you love that. It's, I think like at this point, it's not really a secret that like Kyle is, ba Kyle is based on like a real person in my life. And it's just so funny because I think I was just thinking like, what would he say? Because he was someone who was just very good at putting everyone at ease, saying almost like the most obvious thing in the room, you know, but kind of doing it in a way that made people feel like, like just sit up a little and be like, yeah, like, thanks for noticing, you know, he would just sort of say that thing. And so I kind of love that because I think for her parents, they're sort of like, I think I think Audrey sort of explains it at one point where she's just like, oh, it's not because they love chicken Alfredo. It is like the thing that they've learned how to order and it's reliable and they don't really want to like they're not out here trying to order like cacio pepe, you know. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah, I kind of like I think that's why you sort of love Kyle because he sort of inadvertently, I think sees people like that and just sort of is like cool but doesn't try to make it into a thing he's like oh i love the alfredo too you know <laughs> yeah he's, it's just such a midwestern thing to say too i think yeah like, yeah you're at the olive garden and he's like oh you got the alfredo it's excellent i hear it's I know, excellent right? tonight. <laughs> it's excellent yeah. <laughs> uh so the next thing i wrote down was and i think i'm quoting from the book quote he asks if i want to go to sullivan's and the he here is kyle he asks if I want to go to Sullivan's and I hiccup into the phone. And then I wrote below that, oh shit, here we go. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. you can kind of feel, and I don't think I'm spoiling too much, like there's going to be like a confrontation between Audrey and Kyle, her high school crush at some point in the book. You can feel it building to that. And as soon as she hiccuped into the phone and was like, okay, I was like, okay, this is it. She's gone. Uh, yeah, She's gone. And then there's a hookup. And it happened in a basement. Mm -hmm. And again, as a Midwesterner, I have to salute this creative choice because it's exactly where hookups happen. Like right, if you are above ground, yeah. if, if yeah. you're above ground and hooking up, then you're not actually in the Midwest. <laughs> Especially like, I could never understand. So like, I didn't date in high school and I could never understand like, when I talk to people now and I'm just like, you had a little high school girlfriend, like, how? Like, how did you make it work? Because when you're living in your parents' house, that's a huge logistical challenge, you know? And more often than not, it was like, well, like, in the Midwest, everyone has, like, a nice basement, and that just sort of feels separate. And that was, like, and so more often than not, that was the answer that I heard. It was just like, oh, like, we hung out in the basement, you know? And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. That was yeah. it. Yeah, that feels familiar. So let's see. Uh, next thing I wrote down, sincere empathy for the mother, page 179, the big mm -hmm. fight. 
And then below that, I wrote plight of women immigrants. And you got to forgive me because now I'm trying to think. I know there was a big fight. I wish I could remember the exact details. But I think that something that you do very well in this book, because I think, you know, there's the romantic tension in the book, but there's also the familial tension. And in particular, the mother-daughter tension in the book that drives it. And it's a very delicate dance that you're doing because the tension is very real. And the infractions committed by both Audrey and her mother against one another are very real. Mm-hmm. And not always so pleasant, but you do it in a way that feels earned and human and without, it's like you don't dishonor the very real conflict and you don't dishonor the very real love between them. Mm -hmm. It's somehow they both exist. And that feels like how it is in most actual familial relationships, right? Mm -hmm. It's never like any deep relationship. It's never clean and black and white. And then the other thing too, is that I think by humanizing the mother character and for making her plight, uh, understandable to the reader, Mm -hmm. like the loneliness that she has endured in her life by kind of sacrificing. She moved with Audrey's dad, she gets pregnant. She sort of foregoes her dreams of getting the PhD or whatever, and having the professional life. And then Mm -hmm. to move to a place like uh, I'm blanking on the name of the town in the book. Hickory What's Grove. It called? Hickory yeah. Grove. Yeah. Yeah. Hickory Grove, uh, you know, Illinois. She moves to a place like that without a huge Asian American community or any Asian American community really to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to integrate with. The isolation of it is the point. To be raising mm-hmm. a child, the father's off at work. I don't know. You drew that very well. And even though her mother is can often be very prickly on the page and a little bit like absurd, even mm-hmm. um, mean at times. Mm-hmm. I still loved her. It's a hard thing to do, you know? And I, uh, I guess like a question might be like, did it take you a while to arrive at that level of dimensionality for her? Did you in earlier drafts, was she maybe more two dimensional and sort of just, you know, the opposition? Definitely. I I thought this would be actually more of a mother-daughter book when I first started because like my mother immigrated to the US and she had me pretty quickly and I think like I think when you know when you grow up with immigrant parents you were taught that like this whole everything we have here this is a success story. Like we came all the way here, we did all this stuff. And now, look, it's like worked out. You're going to college or whatever, you know. And I think that like the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of want – I've sort of like thought about the necessity of having – of telling telling that as a success story because I think like – I mean sort of of in the same way when I was watching the movie Minari, I thought that movie was so interesting because – here you see these two Korean immigrants wavering. They're like, why are we here? This isn't really working out the way we thought it would be. I think the mom wants to go back. And I just sort of think that like, I think about how important that narrative is when you have made this, you know, huge, incredible 
change in your life for you and like your family. And like, I think the only way you can really stick to it is to sort of really like believe like this, this is better. And, but the possibility of it being now, or just even considering like what you give up in the process is like, I'm kind of emotional about it now because I think that's just something, I don't think that's something my parents have ever talked about. I think it's sort of one of those things where it's like, you can only look straight ahead. And so I think I've just been thinking a lot about the idea of like opportunity and um, who gets to mess up in a way. Because I think like one of the, one of the breakthroughs I've had just like kind of understanding my own parents was sort of like, I think there are points when I've been a little lost or fumbled and just sort of been like, I don't know if this job in New York is going to work out. I don't know if this whole like writer's life is going to work out and kind of really understanding like that is the gift that they've given me in that like I can kind of question and sort of be unsure whereas they were sort of like we cannot really question this we've committed and we have to go through (laughs) Yeah, no, um, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, there's even a passage later in the book where the mother character says like, I didn't have choices and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but she says, I didn't have the choices that you have. I don't want to see you make the wrong ones or something like that. And mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like, you know, she had this kind of strictured existence, you know, or confined set of mm-hmm. choices if she had choices at all. Mm-hmm. And it probably feels to people who are immigrating that first generation, like they're walking on a tightrope, right? Like one false move and you're off. And then there's people like further down the generational succession. I count myself among them. I'm like third or fourth generation, at least Mm -hmm. on my dad's side, you know? So I'm removed from it a bit and I have so many more choices Mm -hmm. uh, and so much more wiggle room than even my dad had, you know? So it's good to recognize that, I think, right? It gives you a sense of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And also yeah. maybe shame sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know. I know. I think that's kind of what was interesting to me about Audrey and her mom's relationship. Cause I think on one hand, it's like when she's like really making a mess of things, I think on one hand, I think like that was what was so interesting to me about the mom because on one hand, I think she's sort of like, oh, she like Audrey can mess up. And maybe there's a part of her that kind of resents that. Maybe there's a part of her that's like, I set everything up for you and you still like kind of whiffed it. But I think ultimately they both arrive at this like understanding of just like, yeah, you can, you can do this. And that's the difference between us. Right. And I, yeah. yeah. And I got to say, but you know, before we end this, this uh, conversation, I, it's, it's very easy to be over overly simplistic when you talk about people like regionally or culturally or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. But like it is often said like Midwestern people are nice. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean they're not complex. This doesn't mean they can't be bad or evil or twisted or anything. But like I feel very lucky to have grown up in the Midwest. And whenever I meet somebody from the Midwest, I tend to like them or there's something recognizable about it yes i do think there's like it's like such a relief in some ways like my wife is from minnesota 
I grew up in Wisconsin and Indiana. We will like she still has family back in Minnesota. We'll go back there. And I have to say, and we we go in the summer, so it's like usually lovely, and we're out on the lake, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm like this is great. I, I just feel so at home there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And the people are just there's less of an edge or something. Maybe it's because I'm a visitor. I don't know, but it just it feels friendlier and more down home or something, and it feels easier to be social. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Feels I like think you- there's definitely. There's definitely something to it. I think that's like the culture, right? Where it's just sort of like, I don't even know if it's like like this pleasantness, but this idea of just like, I don't know, like like whenever I meet someone who's also from the Midwest in in New York, I feel like there's this exchange that happens under the current that's sort of like, you're safe with me. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> okay. know? Yes. Like, that's how I feel too. Like, okay, yeah. we're. I'm, I'm actually, I think what it is, is it's like, if I make plans with you, this is the Midwesterner in me. And I, I come up against this all the time in my exchanges here in Los Angeles. I have for tw- I've lived here 20 years. Mm-hmm. If like someone's like, hey, do you want to get coffee? And I say yes. Mm-hmm. Like in my head, like that is happening. Mm-hmm. And like we need to set up a time yeah. and I will be there five minutes early. Right. And I'm so curious. Like I don't know if it's just like – if it's some, some like – pioneer thing where it's like oh you couldn't flake on someone if they were they said they were picking you up in their covered wagon and you didn't pick them up right (laughs) like or if it's just really like this idea of like well we all kind of know each other here so you couldn't you really have this like social contract with everyone that you really need to follow or or if it's just like i don't know this idea of like decency what what yeah decency but i was also going to say like not having that much else going on. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's it too. I feel yeah. like I have some huge full social calendar. Someone asks me to coffee. I'm like, okay. I know. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's how I feel about it. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have anything. Sure. You know, but I just don't think there's integrity. I, I like, I understand sometimes there are going to be mitigating circumstances and something's going to come up and a person's going to have to reschedule. I, I totally mm-hmm. understand that. But when it becomes habitual or when you feel that weird, tension where it's like let's get coffee but they don't really mean it mm-hmm. i fucking hate that it drives me I up think the that's wall definitely, that's a cultural difference it was learning like some people don't mean that i remember being shocked you know listen and but then the, the thing is is that it makes me as the midwesterner look like the rube because they're like oh yeah like we should get together and i'm like mm-hmm. okay and so then in my head i'm like okay so we're getting together and then i'll follow up and i'll be like so when are we getting together and they'll yeah. just like not text me back yeah and I'm yeah like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're not getting together. I wish I would have known that that was just like code for like, let's never fucking hang out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, forgive me for misunderstanding that like you yeah. said, but you know, anyway, so I just like the directness and you talked about covered wagons, but like it could be the airport too. Mm-hmm. Like, this is another thing I love about the Midwest is that like people will take you to the airport. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. that's probably changed a little bit, but like we fly into the Midwest. I mean, my uh, in-laws have passed on, but it's like, I remember they'd come pick us up. Mm-hmm. It was just like so delightful. Yeah. Like they'd, sh- they'd be there, there at the baggage claim. And, you know, like yeah. that felt very familiar to me from childhood. Whereas like people show up in LA and it's like, okay, you're going to just take an Uber in? Like, here's our address. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So anyway, yeah. I loved this book. It was, you know, it's just uh, fun. Like I wanted to pick it up and finish it. Like I said earlier, it's an it, like it's an easy read in the sense that like uh, it goes down easy. Uh, like I don't know. I wish I knew why that was. 
Like it's clear, the writing is clear, but some people, there's just a propulsive energy to it. Uh, I always ask people before I do let them go if they're working on anything else. It is fine if you are not, but is there another book in the works? Oh man, I mean, I, I am so excited to start thinking about it, but I have not really thought about it. I'm just like, that's, that's for like a few years down the road, for sure. All right, well, I think you should get an Excel spreadsheet going so yeah. that you can start this next novel. I, I look forward to whatever you publish next. Uh, congratulations on Central Places and just best of luck with all that you have going on, you know, as a journalist and as an author. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you for having me on. This has been such a pleasure. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Delia Kai. Wasn't that fun? Her new novel, her debut novel, is called Central Places. It is out there now from Ballantyne. You can find Delia on the internet. Her website is deliakai.com. She is on Instagram. Her Twitter handle is at Delia underscore Kai. One more time, the novel is called Central Places. It's totally enjoyable. Go get your copy right now. If you would like to support this podcast, I would greatly appreciate that. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also get other people merch. Do you want a t-shirt? Do you want a sweatshirt? Do you want a onesie? Go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. It's easy. If you would like to sign up for my once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this show wherever you listen to this show. Give it a rating, write a review. If that's an option, it helps the cause. If you would like to watch The Other People Show, you can do that on The Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. And if you would like to email me, the address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. I love getting feedback. If you would like to read my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, coming up next on the Other People podcast, I believe my guest will be Vivi Ganeshanathan. I think I have that pronunciation right. Her new novel, Brotherless Night, is outstanding blew me out of the water and i'm very excited about that conversation so stay tuned and i will talk to you shortly 